With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, welcome to episode 17 of YWeb3, Navigating Frontier Technologies. Uh, a seismic shift has happened yesterday. Uh, we were given the approval of the very first SEC uh, Bitcoin ETFs. This approval marked the historic moment, uh, opening the floodgates for mainstream adoption, financial institutions, uh, reshaping really what we could see being the future of the cryptocurrency market. Uh, there's a lot of conversations, good and bad, around this. Um, right before that even happened, the day before, there was already a fake tweet that caused a 90 million market shakeup. Well, Bitcoin uh, rocketed past 47,000 in anticipation of this game-changing IPO. Uh, a, a major stablecoin player is also stepping up into the public stop uh, spotlight today uh, with their own ICO announcements. Um, from Nebraska's crypto uh, fairness bills to South Korea's proposed payments ban, uh, we're going to really go through a lot of regulation and technology uh, news today. We've got a great panel of guests. Uh, today is January 11th, 2024. Uh, Bitcoin is bouncing back and forth between 40, uh, 47 and almost 49,000 this morning. And the NASDAQ is at 14,900. Uh, let's go around the panel real quick. I uh, want to make sure everyone knows who our guests are. It's a new year and a lot of new people new faces here uh connor where are you and how'd you how'd you make your way over here today yeah thanks for having me jay um <clears throat> i live in miami um quick background on myself um started my career in traditional finance so worked in investment banking and private equity um spent a lot of time around structured credit products um in my time in private equity ran a, a big strategy rolling up uh single family homes and then taking them into the ABS market, um, which was a really popular trade in kind of like late 2020, early 2021. Um, and then in 2021, uh, left that fund and, and started MetaStreet, which is what I'm, I'm working on now, which is a completely on-chain uh, structured credit market. Um, so pair illiquid assets as collateral with liquid pools of capital. And the, the, the capital is um, split into tranches. So you can have High risk participants, low risk participants, all kind of um, getting kind of their their risk return profile with what they want um, against the same collateral base. So uh, we launched the protocol in kind of uh, early 2022 and have gone through a few iterations uh, of design. But you know, at its core, it's a permissionless borrowing and lending market um, that supports all types of collateral, um, anything that is represented by an ERC-721 contract address. So um, you can think of it as, you know, the infrastructure that could support the same borrowing and lending markets for, um, you know, NFTs that are artworks and collectibles as, as and in the same breath, you know, uh, representing real world physical assets, collectibles um, that are off-chain, carbon credits. Um, so a, a wide variety of, of kind of like credit market support there. It, it's a very um, yeah, cool, it's a doing. very cool platform. Uh, I spent some time playing with it and, and met a number of your team members uh, at, at some events. And so for anyone who hasn't played with it, it's like, holy cow, it works and it's here. And, you know, now it's a matter of, of real world assets hitting and getting some major liquidity. But, you know, 
it, it's cool to see, you know, true, um, you know, you know, understanding of capital market infrastructure and then bringing that over into the, you know, blockchain space. So glad to have you today. Thanks. Uh, Raul, let's, uh, let's bounce over to you, sir. Sure. So um, I've been financial markets for about 34 years now. I was at Goldman, um, then running global macro hedge funds. I'm a global macro guy by trade. Um, started a business called Real Vision, which is kind of a financial knowledge platform, a media platform back in 2014. It's pretty well known by now. Also have an asset management firm called Exponential Age Asset Management, which is a um, fund of hedge funds that invest in digital asset or crypto hedge funds. And I still write macroeconomic research and investment strategy for the world's biggest hedge funds, family offices, high net worth, sovereign wealth funds, that kind of stuff called Global Macro Investor. And I've been in this whole crypto space since 2012. Yeah. And I think one of the things you and I uh, got to chat yesterday, I mean, you were doing some of the first, you know, theses on why people should be looking from a, from the financial sector at Bitcoin. So this is like, today is like a big day for you. Yeah. I mean, my thesis originally, I mean, I wrote, wrote the first ever strategy piece on Bitcoin and how to value it back in 2013. And, you know, I could see the kind of stock to flow idea for Bitcoin versus gold. But my thesis was, well, the entire financial markets are going to use this for its infrastructure. Here we are, 12 years later, still not got there. You know, everything else happened, NFTs and DeFi and all of this stuff. But, you know, the equity markets and the collateral markets not being tokenized, it's coming, but yeah. it's taken a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and Jenna, my, my travel buddy from last year, we got to hang out at a few conferences. Uh, so, so happy to finally get you on the show. Um, thanks for having me, Jay. Um, I'm really interested in, in what you just said there, Raul. Um, actually, the, um, the the potential for for DLT to transform um, and to take into you know its next digital phase of its life. Um, traditional financial markets was what first attracted me to this space. So that's very close to my heart. Um, I've spent uh, nearly 25 years, which is slightly scary, um, in financial services, uh, mainly consulting. Um, so I, um, I'm the founder and uh, director of a consultancy called Markets Evolution, which specializes in um, financial innovation and regulatory strategy. Um, and um, I've so I've been um, kind of looking at financial innovation for years, sort of crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending, and things like that prior to um, get, getting an interest in, in DLT and its applications in the financial sector. Um, I'm also one of the founding members um, and now a director and policy lead for the Digital Pound Foundation. So we're a not-for-profit uh, trade association and think tank in the UK. Um, that advocates for the implementation of a digital pound in both publicly and privately issued forms. Um, so that's spanning the whole range of central bank digital currency, tokenized deposits, tokenized money, stable coins and their variants and things like that, as long as they're fiat referenced. Um, and um, we also advocate for a diverse, effective and competitive ecosystem for these new forms of digital money and what that might look like and how they can enable and be kind of an underpinning infrastructure in the transition to a digital economy and digital financial system. Fabulous. No, and, and if you can see, uh, you know, and thank you always to Andrea as she puts these panels together. Um, I am I am the least educated in this uh, on this panel, uh, and so I'm really excited to kind of ask the questions because you can hear there's there's you got three experts in TradFi. 
that have all converted over into this blockchain-based ecosystem. And, you know, we really all kind of have to understand that there's this balance of power of, you know, the technology and this, this you know, innovation around, oh, you know, regulation we don't is bad um, versus what we're seeing today, which is like, hey, if you want institutions, if we want the largest liquidity providers on the planet involved in, in, in just Bitcoin, the OG, it's got to be wrapped, uh, you know, in regulation and it has to have rules and, and compliance around it. And so, you know, Connor, you, you've, you've kind of worked on, you know, how do you transition, you know, into this? And, and, you know, I think a lot of us are kind of waiting for what is the game book? You know, what does the game book and a playbook look like this? And so let's just go ahead and start off with, you know, uh, it, Bitcoin was designed around, you know, shunning these financial institutions, shunning of Wall Street. Um, and it went from, you know, F, F you BlackRock to BlackRock, please buy uh, Bitcoin. Um, and so I think it's going to be really interesting. I'd love to hear just the theses uh, around the horn. Um, you know, right now we've already got, you know, Kathy, Kathy Woods is uh, from ARC. Uh, she's out there saying $600,000 uh, Bitcoin is, is her target by 2030. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of FOMO that's going to be happening over the next few days and weeks and months around this. But I'd love to hear kind of the thoughts about this, this culmination now of spots, uh, um, you know, Bitcoin ETF, which is very different than a futures ETF. And so, um, you know, Connor, do you want to take a stab at, you know, what you're kind of seeing in, in the market today and your thoughts around this? Yeah. So just from my perspective, the way I think about it is like price drives narrative. Um, I came into this space in 2021. So after both um, Raul and, and Jana, um, and a, a large part of that was because of price driving excitement. And then you start to see all of these corporate folks talking about, you know, launching their metaverse plays and, and all this different stuff. Um, and I think that, that, that that's always been the case. And I think the, the price driving narrative will continue to be the case going forward over the next kind of like 12 to 18 months um, with a huge added benefit of what I'd call like an Overton window shift around just like broad adoption of um, recognizing that Bitcoin is not, you know, used for criminal activities or so on. Regardless of what, you know, maybe the, the narrative from like, like Gary Gensler, you know, or Elizabeth Warren being, you know, staunchly anti-crypto, having big, large, uh, well-connected, well-funded institutions now um, running a product that relies on people buying Bitcoin for them to make money. Um, I really think you'll start to see an Overton window shift within corporate, you know, U.S. Um, uh, businesses. And the outcome of that will be really positive for people who are building products that rely on crypto infrastructure, because there's always been a huge gap between what can I build that I can use this per permissionless, you know, uh, virtual machine, and what can I then connect into the real world? And so far, you can build crazy, complicated, fascinating projects that rely 100% on blockchain. And as soon as you go step one toe out of blockchain-based activities, it gets infinitely harder. Um, and so like one example is one product that we've been working on is unsecured credit. So um, users that are using their credit score to then borrow money on chain. Um, and this is something that like makes a lot of sense and you can totally build that business sustainably. But the credit bureaus don't want to interact with blockchain, at least not right now. And so when that when that shifts and when all of a sudden the credit bureaus are saying, well, hold on, like Franklin Templeton and Fidelity and PayPal are, are all pushing this technology. Maybe we should actually be looking at this. Maybe we can get an edge 
you know, maybe Equifax can get an edge over TransUnion because they're they're actually like ingesting more on-chain data. Um, that will be really beneficial for like the just the industry a, as a whole. So I have less of a view on on like price movement for Bitcoin, but more about how this has like really rip, big ripple effects of all of these startups that are trying to build products that use this technology. Agreed. As someone who has a startup that uses this technology, this is good. Raul, coming back to you, and again, we, we talked about it earlier, you know, you've been in the space for a long time. You you probably stood on a lot of stages back in, you know, 2012, 2013, you know, early in the days and, and, and said, hey guys, there's there's something coming. Here's what it is. Look at what it's already done. And, you know, we, we've seen the pictures of the crowds back then, and we've even seen pictures last year. You know, I was at Bitcoin Miami. It was, it was a ghost town. Um, you know, are you, are you feeling a little, a little bit of good validation um, that out of all the different assets uh, there's chose from? You know, Bitcoin is the OG. There's been thousands, tens of thousands of, of alternatives, you know, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin this, you know, Paxos has made a whole bunch of things. Uh, but at the end of the day, the market is still choosing Bitcoin for, for the solid theses of which they started? Well, Bitcoin is actually not the blockchain that's going to be used for a lot of this. So Bitcoin has a different purpose in this space. Um, and it's an easier thing to understand. If narrative is important, memetics are probably the most important thing in this space, um, then you know Bitcoin is the easiest one for people to understand as opposed to a virtual computer that is distributed. You know, it's just the complexity behind that. People will start getting things like the ETH narrative soon enough It'll because they'll just go, oh, it's Bitcoin with a yield, and they'll love it, right? Yeah. And yield allows you to do a lot more things than you can do with Bitcoin. You know, the whole financial market, the entire infrastructure of the financial markets, everything that Connor's talking about is based on one single thing, yield. So that becomes, you know, a very fascinating perspective. But why the ETF was so important, it wasn't from the validation of Wall Street and others. Um, because, you know, we don't really care. We've been in this space long enough and we actually cared about disrupting the space. It's the fact that they came across to our side. And stuff that Connor's working on and Janay's working on, that is the financial markets moving across into this new world. That's a big deal. So, you know, if you're bringing the ETF, the capital from behind the ETF, that's just like a trade deal between TradFi land, uh, TradFi world, let's call it Fiat world, and crypto land. That trade deal allows the flow of capital. Now, the flow of capital means that you guys who've built startups will see more, the let's say, the crypto economy growing, creating more revenues, more investment opportunities, and it drives the flywheel. Because, you know, it really is an incentive-based system, which, which is so clever how cryptocurrencies themselves work. It's an incentive-based system to bootstrap and grow a network because it creates Metcalfe's law effects. So it's a very big deal, not because Fidelity, well, Fidelity is actually a bad example, not because BlackRock, you know, because Fidelity have been in the space for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's not because BlackRock now given it a stamp of approval. It's because... We've just done like the WTO trade deal of getting China into the WTO. We've got crypto land yeah. to do a very big trade deal with Fiat World. I think it's huge. And really right back to you though, you know, I, I think I you you brought up a good point. You know, Bitcoin is is Bitcoin. It's it's 
you know, digital scarcity, digital gold. It's, it's its thing. It's not a great network for, for you know, doing things. You know, we've seen ordinals and, and people try to use it as an L1. Uh, ETH is an L1. It's a very, very different use case. It's a very different thing. Um, and I, I hate that the word cryptocurrencies, um, you know, crypt- cryptography, tokens, all that other stuff makes sense. Do you feel like, you know, the fact that we got Bitcoin in and Bitcoin is, you know, kind of, um, you know, it, it's a, it, I, you know, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. They're, you know, I can bring 20 of them on this, on, on this, the show and they'll tell you all the 3000 reasons why Bitcoin is different and Sailor can do it all for days. Do we feel like the fact that we got Bitcoin, you know, kind of like as a household name and brand, it's now something that every, um, you know, everyone can own on their 401k, they can, they can have it in their, their IRAs, you know, you can buy it through traditional means. Do we feel like we've now kind of opened the door that people are going, hey, there's value in the blockchain? What we've done is we've all been seed investors and Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D investors in this asset. We've just IPO'd it. It's the first trillion dollar IPO in history. And you've you know you've got to think you know it's mind blowing what we've memed a trillion dollar a- asset into existence by sheer force of community and passion behind it. And it now IPOs as essentially the largest IPO in history. I know it's not an IPO, but just just as but, a but right. mental no, right. model of understanding this, um, it is such a big deal from that perspective and the validation that has come from that. And it will ripple through the whole space because the next thing, you know, it's BlackRock have applied for the ETH ETF. That will come. And there'll be more to come as well. So what we're doing is just creating all these linkages all of the ability for people to migrate out of an old broken system into a new, efficient, effective system. Um, it's not free of flaws, for sure. We, we know that. But the, the, the technology stack and how things work are much better. You know, we talked a little bit about um, stuff like tokenizing of equities or stuff like that. You know, The breakthroughs and stuff like the Solana Fire Dancer mm-hmm. that's come out of jump trading basically changes the entire game for what we can do. So now we don't have to look for big lumpy assets that can go on chain. We can now put anything on because it's basically ridiculously fast and cheap. So lots to come out of all of this. This is just the start. I love that. So so Jenna, from a from a reg tech side and, and what you do focus in on is currencies, is things that that can be, you know, used to to purchase, you know, daily goods. Um you know, I, I think that Bitcoin is a terrible currency. I think it's, you know, when people talk about, oh, you know, here use the Lightning Network and you can buy things and sell things like, like, no, no, no. Like this is, you know, using ETH as a currency, using Bitcoin as a currency, I think is horrible ideas because they're, they're just too volatile and it's, it's, um, it's not designed what it is. I mean, it's, it's now it was useful for a minute to, to kind of gain adoption. Um, but I can tell you the guy that's still, you know, that's, that's spent a hundred or what is it? 10,000 Bitcoin on a pizza. Like he's proof that these are not currencies because they're not linked to any stable asset. Um, <clears throat> how do you feel today now that we're kind of seeing an early kind of iteration of, you know, regulation around a, a blockchain technology, do we feel like this is going to open the road towards, you know, CBDCs, you know, being globally accepted or, or just institutions kind of saying, okay, there's some, there's, there's, there's technology behind the blockchain that's worth looking at. I mean, I think that, well, first of all, the, 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 the SEC approving a, a, a Bitcoin ETF is a jurisdictional specific event, which 
doesn't really impact anyone in the rest of the world who can't access that anyway. Um, I think that it has significance, though, on a wider scale, because if it paves the way to the introduction of um, ETH ETFs, for example, and things like that, then it ultimately leads investors to question why they want exposure to the underlying asset. And that's going to be for different reasons. So for Bitcoin, for example, um, although it is a terrible, um, uh, it is a terrible means of payment due to its volatility, I, I think it's going to cast the spotlight on, on, on more on the question of why is Bitcoin deemed to be a valuable asset? What purpose does it actually serve and what purpose will it serve on an ongoing basis? I think the cases like more evident for those of us who understand how DLC and blockchain works and what um, it can be used for, for something like ETH, because it's clear there that like if you're if you're exposing yourself to ETH, then you're basically taking a bet on the utility of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so I think there's going to be some interesting questions there. I mean, Bitcoin, despite the fact that most of us would say it's a terrible store of value and it's terrible as a means of payment, it is actually used for those purposes in some parts of the world where, you know, people's currencies are, are even worse. Um, and, and so it does have utility in that respect. But I think as more ETFs are created on different underlying cryptocurrencies or baskets of cryptocurrencies, then there is going to be more analysis of what the value of those blockchains are, especially now that they're coming into the realm of, um, you know, the the regulated investment world who do have the analysts who are going to look at this in more depth and look at the inherent value and stuff like that. Um, in terms of the impact on adoption of digital forms of fiat currency like CBDCs, um, stablecoins and things like that, I, don't, I, I think there's very little impact really. Um, I, I, I think that the two are sufficiently um, diverse, divergent um, in terms of you know their form and function and stuff like that, that um, it's not going to really move the dial in that respect. I think though that again, it might help clarify in some minds more in the TradFi world as, um, you know, analysts start looking at, again, inherent value and use cases and things like that. I think this might force them to finally, um, you know, understand some of the differences between these different types of digital currency and what they can be used for and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, I'm, I'm in uh, what I am a maximalist in is that the SWIFT system and, and kind of the in banking interchange systems are going away and that the entire world will be on, you know, a, a blockchain interchange type system. I don't think there's going to be one chain that rules them all. Um, I think, you know, I just watched a, a really interesting, you know, uh, story about, you know, Netscape had 98% of the browser market, <clears throat> you know, in the early 90s, and, and they're non-existent today. So first mover advantage isn't always what's needed, even though even though right now Ethereum has been able to capture that. Um, you know, we've, we've seen a lack of innovation in reality kind of come out of that ecosystem. So so my question to the panel, and, and feel free to, to chime in, is, you know, are we going to see kind of maybe a splintering of, of this ecosystem? Um, you know, are we going to see kind of the, the dark web um, and then kind of the, the, the regulated side of things happening where there's, there's the, the DGENs are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to play with the technology. They're going to be anonymous. Um, and, you know, the financial institutions, you know, they, they do require uh, regulation. They do require, you know, kind of those audits and, and the compliance around the world. And, and Jenna, that's, that's whether it's, that's in the UK, uh, the US, LATAM, uh, even, even other parts of, 
emerging markets. Um, I, I think there's going to be kind of a, my question is, do we see there's going to be kind of a, a good splintering between those that want to play by the rules using the technology or those that just say, hey, the technology overrides the need for regulation? Well, I think that already off the bat, um, most of crypto is a closed sandbox just with the exchanges largely getting you know in line with the regulators. Not 100%. At this point, but but a, a good portion of how you can on and off ramp into crypto, and then I think that just big picture, the opportunity set is so so much larger if you can actually onboard you know real assets beyond just what's um, able to be like the degen gambling side of the house, and so I think that will inevitably just crush the 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 smaller kind of like fully anonymous activities because it's just. It's it, the opportunity will be so much greater that that's where I think, you know, money will flow to. My, my view on this is, look, almost all technologies that we use are split between the regulated. If you look at email or messaging, if you work for a large company, they regulate what you can use, how it is, what's recorded, what's not recorded. But what you use for your personal life can be very different. And I don't think it's very different here. It's like if you want to operate within the TradFi system or fiat world, you're going to have to abide by the regulations. If you want to store money yourself on your own ledger device outside of the system, you can do that too. Gold operates in the same way. No reason you can't have that duality of systems. So whilst most of the activity happens within the regulated space, I mean, the point of crypto is that you can operate outside it. It's the point of gold as well. Um, while nothing else works that same way. I mean, equity markets don't. No other investment markets have bearer instruments. There are only two. I like, I really, like uh, art and other ones and stuff, but that's not liquid. Yeah. Yeah. I like your example of gold um, because it's, um, you know, gold is, as you say, if I if I want to trade it in a regulated market, if I want to change, trade it in a multilateral environment, it's going to end up ultimately being in a regulated uh, market of some kind. Whereas I could sell you a bag of gold that I have stashed under my bed, if I had such a thing, um, bilaterally, and that would just be an arrangement amongst ourselves. I think though the the key difference with um, the 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 DeFi world is that question over wh whether anything is you know truly DeFi, um, whether anything truly doesn't have an operator. Um, there are obviously situations in which something will be genuinely bilateral, um, and I think that's the same as you know the gold case and things like that, or two people exchanging, you know, one paying another in cash or something like that. But DeFi introduces the new question of can we have a multilateral? Can we have a multi-participant system that is truly decentralized? Um, which is a really interesting question, and I think you know where a we've lot had a few, of people we've had a few regulators, have, yeah. We've had a few examples. I mean, the more successful protocols within DeFi space, Uniswap, for example. It's a great example. When things start early, obviously there's people involved, but over time it just becomes an ecosystem and a decentralized mean. It's a decentralized exchange and it works phenomenally well um, that you don't need humans in the middle at all. There's no help desk. There's no numbers. There's nobody to call. There's nothing to set up. It just happens. It's like... It's but that's exactly what regulators hate. They hate the fact that ultimately, you know, if, if you if you let a bunch of retail consumers go wild at this, then somebody's granny is going to lose their life savings or kill themselves they, or something like so, that. 
and yeah, who has is, recourse to what if the system if the if if the system is truly decentralized? This is non-consistent. You are at eighteen years old allowed to gamble anything in a casino. You are allowed to lend anybody you want any amount of money for any interest rate. You can do pretty much anything you want, and it's unregulated. So why is the system of borrowing and lending in financial markets necessarily a different thing that should be regulated? I can eat any food I want, whether it kills me or not. I can jump off mountains. I can do anything I want. Why should I not be allowed to exchange something that is deemed to be financial when I can gamble in a casino and nobody can stop? You know, there's an inconsistency around it. That inconsistency is driven by the system itself protecting itself from third parties. It's like it's very difficult to start a bank. I know, I've tried, and it's very difficult to do so. Why? Because they don't want it to happen because it's a self-protective system. So I'd just be cautious on saying why DeFi shouldn't be. It's more a question why it should be. You know, Why do they not want it? Well, because then they capture the profits. A profit system that distributes amongst token holders? That's a sacrilege. How does JP Morgan make money? They will go all day to the regulators say, you've got to stop this. But really, what difference is it? I think, you just I, I think a, there a is a material for... difference between someone, you know, I, I, between someone, you know, me lending you some money and charging you whatever extortionate interest rate I, I want because you might be desperate for that money. Um, or, you know, the, the gambling example is a bit trickier. Let's park that one. But, you know, the engagement of two individuals in some sort of financial transaction is different from the engagement of multiple parties together in a multilateral system in which the rules for engagement and recourse and things like that um, might not anticipate, you know, necessarily bad outcomes. And again, if something goes wrong, then what recourse is there for, for someone? And but, it's less about you, systemic risk and more about... Well, well I, let me, let's bring in the one that actually does this every day. Connor, this is what you do. Yeah. Um, so what I was going to say is I, I think that there's, um, there's an appropriate place to uh, bear the onus of like responsible disclosures and so on. And in the example of Uniswap, that would be on the, the token issuer, right? So the token issuer that you're ultimately going to Uniswap to buy a token and swap it with some other token, right? So the responsibility on, you know, the token, um, you know, turns out to be a scam or something, that responsibility is on the, the creator and issuer of, of the token. But Uniswap itself is just a set of smart contracts. So there is no, um, there's no, you know, call center or whatever, as Roel said, because there, it, it's just executing a set of smart contracts. And that ecosystem, that like little economic design is really, really cool. It's really beautiful. Like these, these LPs are earning yield based on volumes that people are swapping back and forth. And it's like, it, it actually has balanced out and worked really well at large scale. Um, now, I think that there's a huge argument to be made that, yes, this is true of Uniswap. However, a large portion of air quotes DeFi does not fit into that category. And in reality, that group who's, who's, kind of riding the Uniswap coattails says, we're also decentralized. 
but in reality, they're they're not. They're you know, there's behind the scenes coordination to get certain tokens listed, certain things approved by a DAO versus not, and that kind of un, undoes a lot of of the advancement that Uniswap has made. So even in lending markets, for example. The previous cycle of lending markets, you had Compound and and, um, Compound and um, Aave, both of whom are governed by DAO votes as to what tokens can be approved or not approved. And fundamentally, that means that you have some some folks who have an, a large incentive to get their token, you know, a token approved as a collateral type, and that results in probably nefarious actions. But from 2021 until now, we've seen an introduction of truly permissionless lending markets as well, multilateral lending markets, where you have lenders that are actually setting prices individually, um, all of whom are aggregated together and create a market. So Ajna, Morpho, um, these are two that do ERC-20 lending. Obviously, what we're doing is NFT to ERC-20 lending. That's also fully permissionless. And in an academic sense, it's it's like there's truly no centralized party in any facet of that decision making. So I think that there's like a really strong argument to be made that this stuff that's truly permissionless is a massive technological innovation. However, there's this all of these like coat hangers that are riding alongside them and are kind of bringing a bad name to what the folks that are like doing true innovation um, can offer. So that, that's my perspective. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and the reason I posed this question, because it was a good one, it, it spurred a good conversation amongst the panel, is, is I think we're going to see a splintering between retail, which is, you know, consumers wanting to interact in peer-to-peer trading and, and you know, they're going to choose the best protocols of which provide them safety. But then you have the institutions. Um, you know, there's very few institutions, no matter how big they were, you know, BlackRock and these other guys, that were willing to touch it unless they had that regulatory clarity and, and they could match their, meet their, their fiduciary responsibilities uh, yeah, to their shareholders. The only reason they did that is because they were forced to. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've spent t- a lot of time speaking to Apollo and, and a whole bunch of these people, they were yeah. desperate to get involved in the lending markets because they do that anyway in unregulated lending markets all the time. The private right. markets, but they were so scared because the regulators were bad. It wasn't that they wanted regulation because it's a cowboy marketplace. These guys know how to operate. They oh, actually very much so. didn't want to get sued. Simple as that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Ripple, I mean, we, we, we talk with the Ripple team constantly. I mean, $200 million in legal fees um, that they've had to put out and, and you know, defensible across the board that they're, they're correct. And if there's been an issue, you know, they, they're happy to, to provide it. They've been operating as if they IPO'd years ago. I mean, they, all the audits, all the discrepancies, like they, they do the work, um, you know, even if it's not required, they basically operate as if they are a public company. And then you have Coinbase, um, who is a public company who the SEC did approve and is still being sued by the SEC. So I think my point being is that, you know, for the institutions are going to have to, they will follow the rules. They're not going to get out of line. Um, and, and eventually we'll, we'll see a culmination of this thing happen because I think, you know, and Jenna, this is where you can talk intelligently is that I think my car, my car, my car is, is a really good, um, you know, first step towards seeing what, what, a, what, a digital and tokenized uh, economy can look like with proper regulation. Uh, the U.S. is just so far behind right now that, that we're excited about, you know, an ETF, when in reality, it's taking multiple steps backwards from a, from a technical uh, standpoint. 
Yeah, and and I think it's um, you know a reflection of the, the U.S. is at a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to this stuff from a regulatory perspective because um, it's got um, so many different regulatory agencies involved um, and a lot of stuff is, instead of being done at a primary legislative level, it's kind of been done through the courts and, um, you know, it's test case after test case and things like that. And in the rest of the world, in the UK and the EU, for example, um, there was never a question of um, XRBP being a security. It does not meet the definition for a financial instrument or a transferable security or anything like that that would fall um, under any you know existing financial regulation it's only in the US with the the, the Howie test that that becomes a question um, and so I, I think you know in, in, in some um, cases it's the rest of the world looking at what goes on in the US with a sort of sense of amusement like guys how are you ever actually going to move towards mass adoption when you can't even figure out what's security and what's not. You don't have any, you know, bright lines around that. Um, I think Mika is a, is a really good example. I mean, it's not perfect, um, but the EU did consult heavily with a lot of different sectors um, and, and different types of market participants and things like that in pulling it together. And it's a pretty good template for, you know, as, as Connor said, um, regulating the issuer and the issuance and the that kind of thing um and it, it has some some definite limitations and some innovative ideas um i think you know mika too is ready in the works behind the scenes um but it's it's really good first step and as a as a harmonized regulation across a number of member states as well some of which had already come up with their own local regimes um it had the the opportunity to look at what had been learned in those local regimes and things like that um before it got started and it covers a lot of activity but not all of it. So, so I want to kind of pivot this conversation a little bit and, and let's go forward because everyone's an expert on this, this call. And I, I think that there's a couple core issues that, that can be addressed and called out from, from uh, kind of an overall asset class that, that have not gotten there. And, and Jenna, you and I got to hang out at, at the Firebox conference this year and really see, you know, what institutional custody looks like. Um, and so I, I have been saying for the last few years, you know, when people say, you know, what's the biggest, you know, uh, how is crypto going to get be main you know adopted by mainstream? When is this going to be a thing? I, I think bridges and wallets are two of the the just absolute we are lagging behind so so far because the the concept of self custody I, I say it's your right it's just a really bad idea I don't care how smart you are I don't care what piece of ledger or plastic you have um, you know we 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 saw fireblocks and the infrastructure these guys have built which is institutional grade. But the starting price point is $70,000, um, you know, plus a, a big technical lift to get there. So, you know, this is like, hey, I, I want to drive a car, but the only thing available is an F1 race car. Um, you know, how does that, that comes down? But I'd love to hear the thoughts around the horn is what is the biggest barriers to entry? Um, you know, I, there's a lot of them, but I think bridges and wallets to me are, are really have to be resolved in a way that is, you know, safe and secure because, you know, a bank is a good custodian. Uh, we may not like our bank, um, but, you know, if, if they lose your money, you at least have some insurance levels and everything else. And you know, let's not talk about Silicon Valley and some of these other things. 
But, you know, I'd love to hear kind of what do we see that, you know, now that that crypto is back in the mainstream and we're going to see this bull run happen again, you know, where responsibly should VCs and and should uh, should all of us be focusing our attention to make sure we do this we, when capital is flowing in easily, that we do it responsibly, and not a bunch of, you know, DGEN JPEGs again. Connor, I'll start with you because you're, you're yeah, the DJ so JPEG I, I expert actually, I, I feel really strongly on the wallet point myself. Um, there's actually been a, a lot of advancement in wallet infrastructure over the last two years, um, particularly with account abstracted wallets. So mm-hmm. um, there's now a bunch of different um, apps. Privy is the one that comes to mind, which if you guys followed the friend tech, uh, mm-hmm. you know, explosion, uh, a few months ago, Privy was the account abstracted wallet that enabled that. So account abstracted wallet basically just means that the wallet is is hosted only in that um, set of smart contracts. And I can use like a Gmail to, to log in. And with account abstracted wallets, you also can um, do what's called a paymaster, where basically the wallet provider is paying for that user's transaction fees. And so you could imagine, you know, a, a company will create an app and they want to get new users onto that app. And so they'll just pay all your transaction fees, like no big deal, especially if it's on a layer two and it's not too expensive. And that starts to look a lot like what a web two experience is from, from an, a social app or anything like that. Um, so that's an area that I, I think I'm, I'm really excited actually about the improvements in, in wallet infrastructure. Um, and I think that that will be a, a big boon for just like adoption and, and users. Um, candidly, like most people come to crypto to speculate, right? So um, that's just the, the, the industry as it is right now. And, and maybe um, as you, you kind of get more, you know, like I said before, this Overton window shift of people just not thinking of this as this like back, you know, back alley casino um, then you'll start to have like new users come in who aren't just here to, uh, to gamble, but, but actually want to enjoy like a, a, a user experience for a social app, which there are actually very many now. Um, yeah. So this, the consumer facing infrastructure. And the other thing I'll say is 2021, you didn't even have L2s. Yeah. Um, so you didn't even have, like, we hadn't even solved the gas problem. I, I'm not sure that we've solved it yet either, but at least it's a lot better than it was. Um, you're going to start to see like some pretty cool apps come out that are consumer facing because the, t- the dev tooling is now there that um, people can build this stuff. And, you know, I can I can build a uh, an unsecured credit app using a privy wallet and it's mobile first and that'll take me two months. And that's so that's that like is pretty cool. I think that will be like a huge boon for the industry. Uh, real quick on that same note, are you feeling very much multi-chain? Is, is our future or do you feel like there's, you know, uh, you know, room for like a Solana to just say like, look, gas is irrelevant. You know, it's just do it all on a single chain. Yeah, I think um, I definitely like I pay attention to Solana. I think it's relevant. Um, I, I think there's a, a lot of value stuck on ETH and EVM, you know, chains. And I think that that's really, really attractive for new startups. So that's really Solana's problem they'll have to solve is get it is attracting the dollars. Um, Because from my perspective, when, when we decide, you know, where we're going to build something, um, you're already taking on so much risk as a startup, and especially as a crypto startup. So the last thing you want to do is also pick the wrong chain. 
and then fail because, you know, you picked the wrong chain and now it turns out there's no users on there. Um, so that's how you, you have, like, if you're trying to de-risk your decision-making, that's how, how we did it. And um, as long as there's that much capital on ETH and users and awareness and all that stuff, ETH ETF would be another big boon for that. Um, it will be harder for other chains to compete. That being said, Solana offers something that ETH absolutely does not. So I totally could see the argument for Solana being, you know, relevant going into the future. So brings brings back to need really robust bridge structures that that don't exist yeah. today. Raul, you 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 know spend a lot of time talking about this and more. You see a lot of uh, investment ideas and, and concepts. You know where do you where do you feel the most appropriate places um, to for again highest ROI on adoption globally? Uh, should be out. Firstly, interoperability, as we're talking about. You know, you just need to not care. I don't know what computers you guys are on, what routers, what Wi-Fi network. I don't care. Yep. Right. That's how technology works. When it becomes magic is we don't even notice it. So I think that that's a key thing. Uh, wallets are part of it. You know, how do wallets exist? I think the integration with the um, TradFi system will make it easy as well to link all these things together. I think that's all coming. As Connor says, everybody's building tons of money went into all of this. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the other thing that's going to be incredibly important is digital identity. This whole world of AI, um, you're going to live it in the US over the election, and it is going to be horrific. Terrible. And there'll be forced regulation really fast on everybody over AI. Nobody has had a, again, like crypto, it's a distributed system of which you can't really touch it. So we're going to need digital identity really fast. Um, and I think it's very useful. We've seen in India roll out really well. That wasn't on blockchain, but the Ardar system went out to 1.1 billion people. Um, and then their payment system on top. And then that digital system allowed for KYC, AML, because you set it up in advance in, some, in a locker, essentially. And then yep. you can go with your fingerprint and KYC everything. Right now... Yep. I live in the Cayman Islands. It's a KYC nightmare. Everything you do, you try and buy a loaf of bread, you need to produce 17 documents. I mean, it's just awful. And if yeah. I could just do that with my fingerprint, it would be great. And you can do that in India of all bureaucratic countries in the world. Um, so it's coming. So that's that's the other one. Digital ID and that digital and attached to your ID permissioned, that you permission, uses. Yeah. No, and I, and I love that and agree with it because as we we build, you know, we have our, our project FinRamp and we deal with, you know, digital IDs as well. And I was shocked when I really do, did a deep dive into digital identity and, and Jen, I spent some time with the, with the uh, uh, CTO of blockchain from Visa while we were at, in, in Mexico. Um, and I was shocked to hear that the average person is being KYC'd and not, not just multiple times, but being KYC'd by the same companies, you know, over and over and over again, because, you know, they don't have a way to store these things. And so I, I think that you're right. There's going to be definitely this, this AI that we need to determine what's a human, what's not a human. Um, and I, and I believe that that's something that should be disclosed because I don't, you know, it's great that I can chat with chat GTP and, and have these conversations with bots. I need a definitive, like, this was, this is a human and this is not. And so I think there's going to be this really big, you know, kind of awakening moment that we're going to have maybe this year, maybe next year about what, it, who am I speaking to? Um, who, who generated this data and who validated what, this data? What information, what video you're watching is real. Oh my I'm God. training a bot right now that is a video version of myself that you have conversations with. It's mind blowing. Yeah. And you can't really tell. 
Yeah. And voice is already gone. Like my voice, like I've oh, yeah. recorded a couple hundred podcasts at this point, you know, they can, they, no one would ever be safe to have a, a, just a phone call with, with me. The best you could do is hope that, that zoom is here, but in the same sense, you know, you got hundreds of hours of, of me recorded on zoom on YouTube. Um, you know, in this exact setting, I, I fully believe that I can have a, a better version of myself that's AI generated doing this in the next few years. But I, I think that, um, you know, I'm going to pivot over to you, Jenna. We actually talked on stage uh, at, at Transform Base that I, I said, I think one of, I think one of blockchain's integrations with AI is, is it's the best protection. Uh, for humans against AI, you know, the concepts around token gating, the talk, the concepts around, you know, ID invalidation and, and re-verification. Um, but that being said, you know, where do you, where do you see, cause you're a little bit different on, on the things that you focus on, Jenna, where, where do you see the investment dollars should go into? Um, I think and I agree with what everyone else had said around um, wallets, bridges, interoperability. I mean, I think a really interesting challenge is how fast the space is moving and what this means for um, adopters, basically, um, and and what this means in terms of the solutions we need. And, and it's a bit difficult to explain, but um, basically, you know, if we if we look at how data storage has changed over the years, um, like we we used to have, we we all most of us probably remember floppy disks and hard disks before that. And we remember, um, you know, we, we remember external hard drives. I have an external hard drive that is, you know, full of stuff. And I can, I, I, I can't even begin to think what I'd have to go through to try and get to access it. Um, and that's how, just how data storage formats have changed over maybe like a 35 year period. Um, if we look at what's happening in the blockchain space, um, and you know, as you said, layer twos didn't even exist what three, four years ago. Um, what we're seeing now is actually not just stranded data, but stranded value and stranded applications. Mm. Um, and I think that's a real risk. You know, an early adopter gets in, they get involved in something. And then due to just the rate of innovation and change in this space, um, you know, they find that not only do they have data stranded somewhere, but they have assets like, you know, actual value stranded somewhere. And that's a hugely off-putting factor, I think. You know, somebody buys an NFT or, you know, they, 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 an NFT of a cat they really like or something like that today. And, and in, you know, in a year's time, they might not even be able to access it. And that's before you get up to actual value again. And so I think a key um, component of this move to interoperability and the kind of seamless user experience which wallet providers can um, provide is taking away that that uncertainty behind the scenes, having some sort of, you know, guarantee of backwards compatibility or the ability to port and migrate. And this ties into the bridging and interoperability side of things, because ultimately people want to take what they're doing and investing now and carry it along with them as the ecosystem involves. Um, and that's certainly on both the retail and institutional level as well. But they don't necessarily want to concern themselves with how exactly that's done behind the scenes or even necessarily that it's happening. So I think that is going to become, you know, quite a hot topic at some point. Um, not very exciting, but increasingly important. 
Jenna, I feel personally attacked by your statement because it, on today of all days, I have to remember that in 2010, I purchased 100 Bitcoin for $20. Uh, and because there was no intrinsic value and there was no, nothing I was interested in when I threw away the computer, like, you know, there, there, was, like, there wasn't even wallets back then. You had to log into a node. Um, and, and like, it was just this incredibly complicated thing that, that never, you know, there was never a way and, you know, the, all the poor, but Mount Gox people are theoretically getting some of their stuff back. So you're right. Being an early adopter in this, you know, isn't, isn't always, you know, a benefit. And so I think that, you know, again, we're, we've kind of hit the nail head. It's infrastructure. I mean, it's infrastructure and it's base level. We've, we've proven mathematically that these tokens are immutable. We've proven, you know, that, that a blockchain can exist and be distributed. Um, but, but the actual interactions that we have with them um, and how we use them is, is really now the, the, that interoperability thing that I think every one of us hit on. So um, it, as we kind of, you know, one, one more point, I just want to bring it, which is the actual usability. So now, you know, we kind of, we, we saw the rise, I think a few years ago when, when stable coins came on. Um, and when we talk about real world assets on chain, you know, 98% of, of what those are today um, is stable coins. And so with Circle now, um, you know, IPOing, and, and I, I think USDC is to me, I feel safest with it. Um, I don't really feel massively safe with most of these. Um, but that being said, I'd love to kind of in a reverse fashion, we'll, we'll start with Jenna, when we start getting into actual like stable coins, um, you know, CDBCs or whatever we're going to call them, do you feel that that's going to come from the, the, the private sectors? Um, or do you think that's going to come from governments that are going to be the issuers and, and reliability or will be a mix of both? Um, to be honest, I think that th there are two sides of, of this really. There's kind of retail usage of CBDCs um, in particular and wholesale usage. I think a lot of focus at the moment is on the retail side by governments, and it's certainly the more easy side for the public to understand. I don't think necessarily that retail is where most focus should be, um, especially since there's more institutional, so bank interest in, in other, um, you know, in, in their own um, tokenized deposits and things like that. And the case is stronger for um, kind of wholesale CBDC as a digital settlement infrastructure for private issuances that could include um, a mixture of tokenized deposits and other non-bank issued stable coins and things like that. Um, I think on the retail side, it's really important that governments continue to explore those. But given that this is such a nascent form of money you kind of and, and, and it's an expensive undertaking it's, it's it's a massive piece of infrastructure investment you kind of want to be certain about what you're building and why you're building it and want to make sure that it's actually fit for purpose and that it can scale um and um evolve over time to meet the needs of your um, economy without having to throw it away and build something new in, you know, five to five years time, because again, it's a, it's a massively transformational foundational piece of infrastructure. Um, so I think from a CBDC's perspective, we'll definitely see more on the wholesale side. I think in, from a retail perspective, we're going to see it, that's where the, the private sector is really going to start. Um, doing a lot more over the next few years. So um, Circle's IPO, for example, um, 
they, you know, while the main user for USDC and USDTDC is still um, crypto trading and, you know, holding funds on exchange um, or hold, holding fiat uh, denominated value on exchange, you don't IPO because of that. You IPO because you see a future in which this is actually a systemically important stable coin that's in widespread usage for things like retail payments. Um, and so I think that that gives us a, a kind of insight into where the private sector is going and what it's doing. And I'm sure in some respect as well, you know, Circle, the timing of Circle's IPO is potentially linked as well to the fact that um, stablecoin regulation has become much more clearly defined and, and evolved over the last um, the last year in many jurisdictions. If they if it's not in place already, like Mika, they are um, in the proposal stage, and um, and also looking at what the banking sector is doing and how they are accelerating their plans in the tokenized deposit side. So it's becoming a bit of a, a private sector race, and that is as all private sector races. Uh, do I think going to significantly spur um, innovation? Interesting. Um, so, Raul, a slightly different question for you. Uh, what do you think? Uh, you, you spend a lot of time with this. What do you, What do you think is going to be the the highest, you know, consumer uh, or institutional adoption that they're going to have? You know, kind of this year. So, we're seeing you know interest come back to blockchain. Um, you know, obviously, Jenna is is bullish on stable coins, and and I I completely believe you know they're working out the regulation and, and compatibility with this. Um, what do you think is going to be kind of the next blockchain based technology that that's going to you know become a household name? I think a lot of the building blocks are already there. Um, you know, I'd add zero knowledge proofs as another thing that we haven't really experimented yet fully with this cycle. NFTs, we saw this first iteration, but again, referring back to Solana, a million NFTs for a hundred bucks, that's cheaper than printing out tickets. Yeah. Right. So I think the whole ticketing industry, hotel rooms, air, air flight, all of this goes. Um, it's just a matter of how fast and who adopts it first. Because the the um, ability to release trapped capital just in hotel rooms is gigantic. We all book hotel rooms of which we can't go at the last minute and we lose our deposits or whatever it is. The hotel is not happy for that either because they don't have you eating a steak and drinking a glass of red wine in the bar, right? They lose the extra revenue. But if we can have a tradable market in stuff, contracts. So look, I think that's big. I think the adoption of... Um, brands in Web3 is huge. I think we'll see a lot more out of the music industry, the sports industry, the entertainment industry, the luxury goods industry. So I think that's all happening. I think what Connor's working on is a very big part of what's coming as well. Uh, I think it's huge. And what Jana's working on and looking at in terms of stable coins, you know, if you, the way to think of um, CBDCs is most of them are domestic currencies. So it's a domestic payments rail. Um, now, um, stable coins are global in nature. So, right, so the, the the Bank of England's CBDC for the pound will not be fungible outside of the UK. That That's the issue, because if not, you need pay, settlement rails and all of this stuff again, and they'll have to have these trans-border agreements, but we don't care in the private sector. We just make it, we just solve it. And that's what, so if you think of stable coins as the euro-dollar market, and you think of CBDCs, domestic currency markets, unless it's wholesale, in which case at wholesale, 
that at BIS level, they're all talking mm -hmm. to each other anyway about how they solve that. So I'm excited about lots of things. I'm, I'm thinking the next uh, two years is the everything, everywhere, all at once cycle. Wow. That's, that's a big, that's a big one to be part of. Um, Connor, I think you're already working on it, but you know, any thoughts around, you know, what we're going to kind of see is, is being that, that, that big, um, I, I know you're having lots of fun doing liquidity pools or around J, you know, NFTs and JPEGs and everything else. Um, are we going to see kind of that, that real world assets start to roll in and you get to, you know, kind of take over, um, a lot of the liquidity of the planet? I, I do think so. Yeah, I think RWAs um, are are for sure a narrative in the next eighteen months. Um, the other areas that I just thought of while Raul was talking on on zero knowledge proof, something that I think is really cool, um, very unknown uh, project, but it's called zk P two P, and it's basically a permissionless on and off ramp using existing peer to peer. Trans, uh, settlement networks. So they basically allow you to um, use Venmo, send a Venmo to someone else that you don't know. And then it releases that same person's money on chain. So I send $100 on Venmo to someone and it releases $100 to me on my wallet on chain. Hmm. Um, and they're using existing email infrastructure to basically uh, verify the, the identity. So that's crazy. And that's a zero knowledge proof thing that just came out. So stuff like that is going to be, you know, to the point on tech feeling like magic. To me, that's tech feeling like magic. Um, and the other one I'll call out is I think, I think we've gotten to a point in the narrative cycle to sufficiently say that the metaverse is dead, which is also exactly when it starts to really make sense. So, you know, 2021, the amount of money these projects raised for metaverse you know, world building is astronomical. And most of them have now been counted out. Um, I think we'll see this resurgence in the next, again, 18 months or so where projects launch. I know, you know, teams personally that have been really building really dramatic, um, you know, worlds. And you have also driven on by like the Apple VR headset and all of this. I think we'll see that, that narrative come back um, GTA six comes out, you know, and they're going to have some token or something in there. Like, I think that will come back and people start to talk about that and get excited about it again, too. We'll know the bull run is on fully when, <clears throat> when Decentraland becomes a point yeah. of conversation again. I probably would these... stay away from Decentraland. Just oh, God, it was, it's so, <laughs> such a, such a nightmare. Um, so it, it really, like I said, bring around the horn. You brought up Apple, so I'm going to do it in the closing question uh, before you say, you know, where who uh, where to find you if people want to know more. Uh, are you going to buy the Apple Vision Pro? Thirty five hundred dollars for a, a Gen One product. Um, I, I I'm going to begrudgingly do it uh, just because I, I I feel excited about it. I I want to uh, really see what this looks like. I've bought every other headset that there is, and I hate them all. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and burn <clears throat> burn an, an ETH and a half. Uh, on one of these. Uh, Connor, uh, you going to buy the, the Vision Pro and where can people find you? Uh, I probably won't, but it's a it's a hack. My co-founder is like the biggest VR nerd ever. So he's going to probably own one and I'll just use his and see if it's worth owning or not first. Um, <laughs> Wait and see. But uh, you can find me um, on Twitter at underscore Connor Moore, but mainly just go to metastreet.xyz, check out uh, the protocol and, um, you know, we have all of our social links on there. Um, super responsive team. So people, uh, want to find out more. We're always a quick message away. Awesome. Awesome. Jenna, you're going to head into VR land and, uh, where can people learn more about digital pound? 
Um, I am not. I'm probably going to wait for an iteration or two um, before I throw some money at it. Uh, but I will probably try to find a friend and try theirs out. Um, and people can find me on LinkedIn. So Gemma Pache, the only one of me, um, and um, at the Digital Pound Foundation as well. So digitalpoundfoundation.com. Fabulous. Raul from uh, Cayman Islands. I'm kind of like you, Jay. I'm going to FOMO into this thing, knowing that I'll use it for an hour and a half and never use it again. <laughs> but knowing I will also come back in three iterations time and be endless and be living on it. So yes, I'm definitely going to waste three and a half thousand dollars just to appease Apple, the Apple God. Um, people can find me uh, on Twitter at Raul GMI um, or check out Real Vision. So that's realvision.com. Uh, see the platform we've built to help people educate them on everything from crypto to macro to technology um, with AI built in and all the other. It's an amazing platform. Yeah, no, I I got a demo of it yesterday. And for anyone who hasn't seen Real Vision, I was blown away. Um, truly, I, I think is the future of communities uh, related to Web3. Um, so yeah, love it. And, and Jenna, I hope to see you on the, the conference tour again this year. I uh, had, a, had a fabulous time with you. And I, I do need to get the Apple Vision Pro because I have to continue my collection of Gen 1 Apple products and and that I've personally owned. Um, but, I, but I think it's going to be one of those things that, that by the time you're right, you get to Gen 3, it's going to be light years ahead of, of where they're at. Um, but I think it's, it's def- immersion is coming. So uh, thank you guys all for the time today. Uh, y Whales, wherever in the world you are, uh, appreciate the time. We'll see you guys later and uh, talk soon. Y Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Y Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show and your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.